This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount, to the Mount of Olives. We're in the second half this week of a two-part mini-series we began last week on the subject of the sacraments, the two great rituals of the Christian church, baptism and communion. We talked about baptism last week, and so we're talking about communion this week. It's a, it's a sacrament that goes by several different names. It's also known as the Eucharist, which is the Greek name for Thanksgiving. It's also known as the Lord's Supper because it was instituted by Jesus himself. And I want to start by giving the same disclaimer or the version of the same disclaimer that I gave last week, which is that I actually didn't need those, so I'll just... Thank you, Elf. Uh, when we're talking about the sacraments, we're talking about baptism and communion, we're talking about Christianity at its core. Uh, we're talking about Christianity at its most theological at its most mystical, at its most otherworldly. And what you may feel is we're talking about Christianity at its most irrelevant. You know, I think for a lot of you, for these, these subjects, there's this sense in which you know, some of the themes we're going to be talking about are, are very obscure today. And there's this sense in which what could this possibly have to do with my life? Versus this six-week series we just wrapped up immediately prior to this on work, work and faith, which it's all about your life. It's all about directly how uh, Christianity applies to you. So in response to that, in defense of, of talking about these subjects, what I'd say is there are two different types of needs we all have. There's the needs we know about, and there's the needs we don't know about. And I realize that when we talk about baptism and communion, that doesn't meet a need that you feel you have. You know, it doesn't scratch an itch, so to speak. But that doesn't mean it's not meeting a need. What, I, what I'd argue is that what we're talking about today, when we're talking about communion, actually meets the deepest human need of all. The deepest need that all of us have is just a need that we've papered over and ignored and don't like to think about. So with that preface out of the way, we'll get into it. I want to talk about the subject of communion uh, under four headings, four sections to this morning's sermon. First, the strangeness of communion. Second, the... Oh, no, I did need that. See, I, I needed it. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't even write it down. The strangeness of communion, the... the, the, uh, the okay, so the fourth one is... 
the power of communion. The power of communion, the significance of communion is second, and then third in between two and four is the necessity of communion. And now I'll give those to you all again in order. So uh, first, the, the strangeness of communion. Second, the significance of communion. Third, the necessity of communion. And fourth, the power of communion. So first, the, the strangeness of communion. In this first section, I just want to talk about how odd this is. First of all, what is it? You know, last week we were talking about baptism. Baptism is essentially a, a ritual bath. So communion is a ritual meal. It's bread and it's wine, it's food and it's drink. And it's this ritual meal that we eat every week at our church, just as most churches do around the world and have for 2,000 years. Right now, actually, as we speak, you can count on it that somewhere in every country on earth, somebody's observing and eating and drinking this, this ritual meal of bread and wine. Now, the, the ritual meal part isn't the strange part. What's strange and odd about it is what the elements of the meal, the bread and the wine, represent. One of the things you'll hear people say sometimes, and you'll even hear educated people say this, and it takes me aback every time I hear it, is they'll say, you know, all religions are basically the same. And there are a hundred different ways you can quickly and easily show how false that statement is. But the first place my mind often goes when I hear somebody say that is to communion. Because my question is, what other religion gathers every week to celebrate the death of its founder? What other religion requires its adherents to eat the founder's flesh and to drink the founder's blood. It's very strange. It's very, very odd. And the strangeness of it just points to the strangeness of Christianity's relationship with and thinking about the death of Christ itself. You know, I was saying all religions are different. One thing that many religions besides Christianity have in common, one point of commonality is the, the types of lives their founders lived and the way their founders died. So Moses, for example dies at 120 years old after having given the law, after having been the, the leader, undisputed leader of his people, and leading his people out of slavery to the edge of the promised land. Muhammad dies in his 60s as the leader of the first leader of the United Arabia politically, he dies in the arms of his wife. Uh, Buddha dies at age 80, uh, surrounded by disciples in peace and serenity. Contrast that with Christianity, where you have a man who dies at age 33, somewhere around there. He's only been a public figure for at most three years, and the way his very brief career comes to a, a quick end is he's uh, handed over by his own people to the foreign colonial power, and he's executed. At the end, he is abandoned by every one of his friends and followers, and if you believe the text of Matthew's gospel, he's abandoned even by God. And it's not just a death. It's not just an execution. People uh, are pretty familiar, I think, with the, this idea that the cross, the crucifixion, was uh, very physically torturous. But what sometimes gets overlooked is that the cross, even more than being designed as a device for physical torture, was designed as a device for psychological torture. You're, you're hung up there naked for everybody to watch you die over the course of an entire day, or often over the course of several days. Cicero said that the word crux, the Latin word for cross, he said it's an obscenity. It's not appropriate to, to even mention that word in polite company because of what it connotes, because of the, the humiliation, the shame, the barbarism of it. And yet, the Christian church takes that obscenity 
and makes it their emblem, puts it front and center, not only as their emblem, but at the, at the center of their worship service, this, this meal observing this death, resurrection. So it would be like today, if you, you know, think of a four-letter word and make that word the name of this church you're starting, you know, the blankety-blank church of New York, and see who shows up. And yet that's exactly what Christians did. And it raises this confounding question of how did this movement ever get off the ground to begin with? You know, with the other religions, it kind of makes sense because you've got this great leader or this, this person of great wisdom, this great teacher, this great uniter. And people look at this person and they say, wow, look at the way their life turned out. You know, I, I'm going to try that. It seemed to work for them. I'm going to follow this teaching. I'm going to give this a go. I want this path. But this, this question with respect to Christianity is that one of the great questions of history, actually, is who would look at the way that Jesus' life ended, at the way he died, and say, now that's the path for me. That's what I want. This is the religion that I want to follow. It doesn't make any sense. And the only way of explaining it is there must have been something about that death there must have been something about the meal that celebrated that death and commemorated that death that was transformative for those who witnessed it and those who partook of it. So that takes us to the second section, the significance of communion. That's its strangeness. Now let's second talk about its significance. And this is going to be the longest of the four sections, longer than the other three, because it's going to take us some time to dig into what, what is the significance of, of communion? What does it signify? What does it mean? The good news is we know exactly where to look. If you want to understand communion, the Lord's Supper, the place you have to look is the Last Supper. Because the Last Supper uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, not only the Last Supper in the sense that he uh, was the last meal he ate with his disciples, it was also the First Supper, and it was the first time the Lord's Supper was observed. Now, the Last Supper wasn't just any meal. It was a Passover Seder. And now we have a little chain going here. If you want to understand the Lord's Supper, you have to understand the Last Supper. If you want to understand the Last Supper, you have to understand the Passover Seder. What was the Passover all about? Many of you have probably been to Passover Seders here in New York with your Jewish friends. Even if you haven't been to a Passover Seder, you probably know the meaning of the Passover. The Passover celebrates the Egyptians' uh, freedom from slavery in Egypt, them being released out of bondage from this people that had oppressed them for 400 years. And if you remember the story, what's interesting about it is there's no revolt. There's no armed uprising. Rather, the Pharaoh releases the Israelites of their own uh, free will, and they walk out without having to put up a fight of any sort. But Pharaoh only does this after God essentially forces his hand. And God lowers the, the sword of divine justice, of divine judgment upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptian people. And what that looked like is we don't like to talk about this sort of thing today because we don't like to think about a God who would do something like this. But what happened was, and it was actually very straightforward in terms of justice and in terms of fairness and balancing the scales, is God says to Pharaoh, essentially, look, Pharaoh, you and your people have been oppressing this other people for 400 years. You've been taking their lives as if they were your own to do with as you pleased. There was even a point in which you took all of their newborn infant babies and killed them as a means of population control. And you think I haven't been watching. You think I haven't been paying attention. You think I haven't seen any of this. But I have. I've seen all of it. And now I want to let you know that it's not okay. It's not okay what you've been doing. And so the way I'm going to drive that home to you is I'm going to balance the scales, I'm going to make things even, and I'm going to take the life of every firstborn Egyptian son. Because I know that's the only way that you're ever going to release the Israelites anyway. 
So that's what he, he does to the Egyptians. And there's an, there's an analogous situation to this in American history, actually. You remember uh, a couple of months ago we were talking about the American Civil War in the context of redemption. It also applies. The American Civil War is also applicable in this context of justice. Because uh, what was universally acknowledged during the Civil War from every pulpit in the North was that the Civil War was God's punishment on the country. It was God's punishment on a national scale for the sin of slavery and the injustice of slavery. And Lincoln himself ends up adopting this view, and he's the one that expresses it most family in, in the uh, second inaugural, the passage toward the end, right before he says, you know, with malice toward none, charity for all, he has the part where he says, firmly do we hope that this war, this mighty scourge of war, will speedily pass away, but if God wills that it continue until all of the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited labor is sunk. And until every drop of blood that was drawn with the lash is paid by another drawn with the sword, then so we must say today, as it was said 3,000 years ago, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's justice. Justice on this grand scale. That's what the Egyptian's firstborn son being killed is about. And even though we don't like it, even though it still seems overly harsh to us, we do get it. There's a a sense in which it's intuitive. The bad guys get what's coming to them. Now, if that's all there was to the Passover story, then you could plausibly argue that this whole Passover story was made up, that the, the Israelites just made up this story as this myth, this national myth about deliverance, about the bad guys getting what was coming to them and God delivering them and them getting delivered, and it's just kind of this rah-rah for us story. But there's more to it than that. There's another part to the Passover story, and this other part makes it such that you can't plausibly argue that the Passover story is made up because this other part is is so morally enlightened and so self-aware and so painfully honest that no group of people would ever make this up. And the other part of the story is God doesn't just say to the Israelites, okay, I'm going to deliver this justice and this judgment to the Egyptians so that you can go free. What he says is, on the night that my judgment falls, on the night that the angel of death comes and takes every firstborn son, You're going to need to do something. And what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to kill a lamb, take your best lamb, a spotless lamb, kill a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and smear it over the doorpost of your house. And if you do that, then when the angel of death comes, the angel will pass over your house and you'll be spared. That's where the name Passover comes from, the angel of death passing over these houses. And the question is, what is this about, this this blood on the doorpost? What it's not about is it's not a, a flag, a convenient marker of identification. You know, it's not like the, the angel of death has bad eyesight and can't tell the Egyptians from the Israelites and so, oh, I, I was going to go in there, but there's blood on the door, so now I don't have to do that. It's, it's about something much, much deeper than that. What it's about is God saying, look, when my judgment falls, it's indiscriminate. It doesn't just hit the bad guys, it also hits the good guys. It doesn't just hit the people who have the wrong religion, it also hits the people who have the right religion. It doesn't just hit the oppressors, it hits the oppressed. Because what the Bible is very clear about throughout is that there's actually no such thing as good guys and bad guys. There's just bad guys and worse guys. 
the, the line that separates good and evil. That line does not run between any two groups of people. It runs right down the middle of every human heart. Everybody's guilty. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, no one is righteous, no, not one. Everybody has this wickedness and hatred within them. Even the good guys, the so-called good guys, even the so-called innocent ones. And so God says to his own people, these are the ones that he's trying to save, the ones that are on his side. He says, look, being from the right ethnic group and having the right religion and being on my side, so to speak, that in itself isn't enough to exempt you from judgment. I can't just arbitrarily punish them and let you off. So to show that you understand that, as a symbol of that, a lamb needs to die. A lamb needs to die, and the blood of that lamb needs to go over the doorposts. Which meant that in that land of Egypt, on that night when the angel of death came, in every single household there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. It was one or the other. And if it was a dead lamb, then the son looked at the lamb and knew that lamb died instead of me. And that's what's celebrated every year with the Passover meal. It's telling that the name of the holiday is Passover. Not the Exodus even. Not the freedom. That isn't the main thing. The main thing that happened, the main miracle of that night, was that was the night that God's judgment fell and somehow we were saved. God's judgment fell on the land and somehow we were shown mercy because the lamb died instead of us. That's what they would celebrate. Moses said, we've got to remember this every year. We have to have this ritual meal where we remember what happened. So we'll have bread, unleavened bread, just like we had that night on the Passover, the first Passover. We'll have wine, just like we had that night. And we'll have lamb, just like we had that night. And we'll remember what God did and the way that God saved us. So that's the context. That's the night. This is the meal. This is the moment. This Passover Seder at which Jesus chooses to explain his own death to his disciples. And if you remember from the, the scripture reading, you may have noticed that this is a very strange Passover Seder. Because they have the bread, just like every Passover meal was supposed to have, and Jesus takes the bread and blesses the bread. And they have the wine, just like every Passover Seder was supposed to have, and Jesus takes the wine and blesses the wine. But nowhere in any of the four Gospels is there any mention of lamb. And the reason there's no mention of their lamb being on the table is because the lamb of God is at the table. What do I mean by that? Well, something that may bother you about this whole kind of arrangement where a lamb dies instead of a human being is, wait a minute, how is that fair? How is it fair for an animal to die instead of a person? How is that an even trade? How is that good enough, the blood of a lamb, to exempt a human being or a group of human beings from judgment? That doesn't make sense. And if you've felt that way, you weren't the first one to to think that or to feel that way because Israel's prophets had actually said the exact same thing long before Christ. Long before Christ, they had looked at the, the Passover lamb and then they looked at the sacrificial system that followed it, which was based on this same idea. And they had said, you know, I don't think this is going to work long term. This idea of God uh, forbearing with us and, and not punishing us for our sins because of the sacrifice of an animal. This is just a stopgap measure. This can't be the ultimate solution. This must just be prefiguring something else, pointing to something else that's to come later. So Isaiah, Israel's greatest prophet of all, talks in Isaiah 53 about how in the end it's going to be a person that suffers as a substitutionary sacrifice for everybody else. And in Isaiah 53, he talks about this, this person, this anonymous suffering servant who's going to come. He says he was oppressed And he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. His life was poured out for many. He was led like a lamb to be slaughtered. 
And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even though he wasn't a sinner, even though he was innocent, he was counted among the transgressors. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lamb of God. What does John the Baptist say the first time he sees Jesus walking toward him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at this Last Supper, at this Passover Seder, Jesus is saying that what Isaiah said hundreds of years ago is right what John said about me at the beginning of my ministry is right, and now I'm saying it to you directly. I am that lamb. I am that person that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. And I am the new Passover lamb in the sense that now it's because of me that God's judgment passes over you. Now this is the new exodus, and you're being set free not just from Egyptian slavery, you're being set free from sin and death itself. So there's not going to be any lamb anymore at the meal, because I am the lamb. Now the bread, we take the bread, and the bread represents my body broken for you, and we take the wine, the wine represents my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the second section of the sermon. That's the significance of the Lord's Supper, the significance of communion as seen through the lens of the Last Supper, as seen through the lens of the Passover. Now moving on to section number three, which is the necessity of this meal, the necessity of communion. And and here what I want to talk about is not even so much the necessity of communion itself, but necessity of the death, the substitutionary sacrifice, the broken bread, and the, the wine, the broken body, and the shed blood of Christ that's behind the meal. Because I think that the response of a lot of people to everything we just talked about in section number two is, okay, I can kind of see how that works. I, it kind of makes sense to me. I get, you know, the, the historical connection between the Last Supper and Passover. I can see how on this structure Jesus is the Lamb of God. I, I, I get how all the dots connect, but it doesn't emotionally resonate with me. In fact, I actually have a problem with it. And the problem I have with it is, why all this focus on sacrifice to begin with? Why, why all this focus on justice to begin with? You know, instead of talking about justice, I mean, I, I heard everything you were saying about everybody's guilty, everybody's deserving of judgment, fine. But instead of focusing on that, why can't, isn't God also a God of love? So why can't we just focus on love? Why do we have to be talking about all this bloodshed? Is, he, is God this bloodthirsty God, this tribal God that has to be appeased by blood? If he wants to forgive us, why can't he just forgive us? Why can't he just go and do it? If he wants to love us, why can't he just love us? I think that's the response a lot of modern people have. And it's a response that is, is hopelessly naive. It's hopelessly ignorant of the way that real relationships actually work in the real world. You want to talk about love? Fine, let's talk about love. The way real love works is you've never loved a broken person, you've never loved a wounded person, you've never loved an imperfect person without you suffering in their place, without you suffering as a substitutionary sacrifice for them. Now, a, a nice person, you know, a person that has all their stuff together and doesn't have any problems, a person like that is, is easy to love. It's fun. It's, it's wonderful. There are four or five of these people in New York City, and you should, you should find them and make them your friend. It'll be great. But if you want to love a, an imperfect person and a broken person and a wounded person, it's going to cost you, and you're going to end up suffering in their place. I want to give you three hypothetical examples of this that are all saying the same thing. So example number one, everyone has somebody in their life or a number of people in their life that are emotionally needy. You know, these people that 
Uh, when you, you see them coming toward you or you see them calling on the phone, your first instinct is, is to want to walk the other way or to not pick up the phone because you know you're going to have to listen to them. And listening to them is just so draining. It's so draining for you to listen to them, but the only way that person who's emotionally needy and emotionally empty is going to be loved is if you do listen to them. That's the only way that they're going to be filled up. And the only way that you're going to be able to listen to them is if you're drained. So you see how this works? It's them or you. Because you can protect yourself and walk away and not let yourself be drained. But then they're going to sink. It's them or you. If they're going to be saved, you have to let yourself be drained. You have to let their emptiness, you have to let their neediness hit you so that some of your fullness can transfer over them. Example number two. This is the premise of a lot of different movies where, uh, let's say you're the protagonist and you're safe, you're an upstanding citizen, you know, your life is going well, you're happy, and uh, you, you have this friend that comes to you that has somehow fallen into a bad situation and they're now a fugitive. People are out to get them, they're being hunted, and they're in trouble and their life is in danger. And they come to you and say, the only way I'm going to be saved is if you help me and protect me. Well, you have a choice to make. Because if you do help them and protect them, all of a sudden now you're placing yourself in danger. You're becoming the substitutionary sacrifice. You were fine before, and now you're going to be subject to the same people that are hunting them. Or you can decide to stay safe and keep yourself out of it, in which case they go down. If you want to love them, if you want to save them, it means you placing yourself in their place as a substitutionary sacrifice. Example number three, uh, let's say that you were one of the, the cool kids in high school. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about this personally, no shocker there, but um, some of you would. Some of you were one of the cool kids or part of the in crowd, or even if you weren't, imagine if you were, imagine there's this other kid, this this girl, let's say, that's it's not so cool. She's sort of dorky, she's on the outside, she's uh, awkward, she, she makes people feel uncomfortable, no one really likes her. And let's say you decide that you want to break through her isolation and her alienation and become her friend. If you do that, what's going to happen is the other cool kids are going to start saying, what are you doing hanging out with her? You know, and they're going to start joking about you behind your back. And what that is, is it's some of her dorkiness rubbing off on you. It's some of her isolation and alienation rubbing off on you. So you can't love her without putting yourself in her place, without becoming for her a substitutionary sacrifice. See what I'm saying? said the same thing three different ways. And the point is, you're the dork, you're the fugitive, you're the emotionally needy one. And suffering on the cross is what it looks like for Christ to love you. You may say, I don't like all that, that suffering. I don't like to think about it. Well, sorry, that's just what it looks like. That's what it cost. We talked last week about how becoming a Christian is not just following Christ or, or obeying his teachings or appealing to him when you need help. It's actually being united with him as in a marriage. And as in a marriage, what that means is that the, the partners exchange everything. So Christ gets everything you have, which is a really bad deal for him. And you get everything Christ has, which is a really bad deal or good deal for you. And he does it. Christ does this out of love for you. You know, it makes you feel bad to think about all that he had to take on on your behalf. But it should make you feel good to look at the fact that he was willing to do it for you out of love. That's the third section of the sermon, the necessity of communion, and even more than that, the necessity of this substitutionary sacrifice. It's not arbitrary. It's not this archaic thing that a bloodthirsty God requires. Rather, it's just part and parcel of love. 
Fourth and finally this morning, I want to talk about the power of communion. We've looked at its strangeness. We've looked at significance. We've looked at its necessity. Lastly, what's the power of this ritual meal? And here we're talking specifically about the meal, the power of the meal for the person who eats and drinks. What's the effect on a person if they eat and drink the, the bread and the wine? And here uh, that we've come to a point of debate, a point of contention, there are two different views on this. There are actually more than two views, but there are two main views that have divided the Christian church for centuries. So the first view, the Catholic view, is that the power of this meal is in, in that the, the bread and the wine are actually literally Christ's body and blood. So when Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's speaking literally. And what that means is, you know, if Christianity is being united with Christ, then when you take the elements, when you take the bread and the wine, you are actually physically taking Christ's body and Christ's blood into you, and therefore the union is, is effectuated. It happens right there, regardless of any faith or intention on your part. It's, it's automatic. The Versus the, the, the Protestant view, or the view that most Protestants take, which is that Jesus isn't speaking literally, it's, it's symbolic, it's metaphorical language, and so the, the elements of communion, the, the body and the blood, are, are just they're represented by the bread and the wine, and it's this uh, ceremony that's to help us to remember. But really what unites you with Christ, what actually does the work, is faith, not the elements itself. So who's right? Well, both views have, have a couple of major problems with them, and I'd like to take a second to look at those. The problems with the Catholic view, two problems. The first problem is that when Jesus says that night to his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, he's standing there. He's standing there in the flesh. So it's, it's problematic. To, I mean, it's strange to think that the disciples would have interpreted that in any other way but metaphorical because he's still there. His body and blood are still there in the flesh. It seems to be symbolic language, at least that night. Now, that doesn't settle it, but it's worth noting. The second problem with the Catholic view, and the more serious problem, is that there are all sorts of times in Scripture where it's talked about a person becoming a Christian, becoming united with Christ, where there's no mention at all of communion. All that's mentioned is belief, all that's mentioned is a profession of faith, and this intention within the person's heart. So you have to discount large swaths of Scripture if you want to say that the communion elements themselves are what effectuates the union between the person and Christ because there's all these other passages that seem to say that faith and belief themselves are enough. What are the problems with the Protestant view? Though? The Protestant view is, is essentially that uh, you know, it's, just, it's just to remember, it's just a symbol. And the problem with that, the biggest problem with that is probably best seen in a passage that we looked at last week, or we mentioned last week at least, which is in John 6, where long before the Last Supper, Jesus says... If anyone doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood, he can have no part of me. He has no life in him. And you can say, well, he's just using symbolic language there, just like he's using symbolic language at the Last Supper. But the, the issue is, why does this image keep coming up? You know, why is he talking about this, again, even before the Last Supper, this eating and drinking of him? It, it seems to be that there's this importance to the idea that it's not just about following him, it's not just about obeying him, it's not just about listening to him, it's about feeding on him. It's about drinking him in. You know, last week when we were talking about baptism, we talked about being immersed in the water and you being immersed into Christ. You are in him. Now we're talking about the other side of that exact same coin. Not you in him, but him in you. He's actually in you. And the communion elements, the, the bread and the wine, it seems a little bit odd to say that they don't have any part to play in bringing that about. You know, essentially, if you, if you say there's no power in them, you're saying they're, they're really basically just like a, a visual aid. 
you know, an, an ancient PowerPoint presentation, this, this sensory experience that's supposed to kind of like help you get it. And it doesn't seem like that's the way Scripture talks about it. It seems like there's this mysterious power to them. Even though faith is the thing that does the real trick, even though the, the elements themselves, without faith, they're not like magic, they're not going to do anything. Still, the, the sacraments, baptism and communion, play a part in bringing this union about. And one of the things I like about the Catholic view, and one of the things I like about placing the emphasis on the elements themselves, the bread and the wine, the body and blood themselves, is that it reminds us that it is Christ himself and Christ's substitutionary sacrifice itself that saves us and not the strength or the quality of our faith in Christ. That's a pretty abstract, subtle distinction. I think the, the best way of understanding it is still this old illustration which says, imagine you're, you're falling off a cliff and as you're going down you see this branch and you, you think you have just enough time to reach out for it and grab it. So in that split second where you're deciding where you're going to reach out and grab for this branch, the question is, how much faith do you have to have in the branch in order for it to save you? You know, you, you could have this spectrum of beliefs about the branch. You could, on the one hand, feel like, I'm sure it's strong enough to hold me. I know it will. Or you could feel like, I'm not sure, I'm not positive whether it's strong enough to hold me or not. Or you could feel like, I'm pretty sure it's not. Or I'm very afraid that it's not strong enough to, to hold me. But all of that ends up being totally irrelevant. Because in the end, what saves you isn't your strength of faith in the branch, but the strength of the branch itself. If the branch is strong enough, the branch is strong enough, regardless of how you may feel about it. So all you need, all the faith you need, is enough faith to reach out and grab it. And in communion, Jesus is giving us a way to reach out and grab him. Jesus is the branch. And with communion, we have a way to grab him, a way to hold him, a way to reach out to him. And you just need enough faith to receive it, and he does the rest. You know, the interesting thing about a meal is you can have this meal piled up in front of you, cooked to perfection, but you can still end up starving to death if you don't actually take the food and put it into your mouth. Which is why Jesus just doesn't, doesn't say, this is my body, this is my blood, and that's that. You know, I'm dying for you, and that's the end of the story. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. Take, eat, take, drink. You have to appropriate this for yourself. Let's pray. God, these are things that are beyond us that we're talking about this morning. Things that we try to understand, but we never really understand I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you give us ears to hear, and you give us hearts that can receive these things that common sense and our normal way of looking at life says are are kind of silly and irrelevant, that you would show us that when we come to the communion table, this is the food we need. This is the food that our hearts most need. I pray that you give us enough faith to take and eat, to take and drink, that as we do, you would unite us with Christ. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Christ's sacrifice. We thank you for the lengths to which you are willing to go to love us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.